it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. We were close, America. We were this fucking close to doing something so embarrassing and colossally stupid. Not that we're above that sort of thing and not that we haven't done it before. See 2016, the presidential race. But we came to our senses and therefore the word of the week is thankful. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Now I am thankful because last week Georgia elected Senator Raphael Warnock to the United States Senate over Herschel Walker, a.k.a. Feats don't fail me now, a.k.a. we sick, a.k.a. every day I'm shuffling, shuffling. It was close, but as usual, black folks came through in the clutch, save democracy for the 511th time, even though white folks were determined yet again to burn this bitch to the ground on a bullshit. Here are some exit poll numbers that probably won't surprise you. 71% of white men voted for Herschel Walker. 68% of white women there they go, doing their usual white women shit. Meanwhile, here's what the black people did. 85% of black men voted for Warnock, 93% of black women. The majority of white people looked at Herschel Walker, an incompetent, abortion-paying, serial buffoonish liar, and thought, eh, he'd make a good senator. I know exactly how we got here. Hint, white supremacy. But rather than focus on the negative, I want to give credit to the people that helped us avoid complete disaster. Overall, it was the organizers, black boots on the ground folk who made this happen. They worked tirelessly. Protect the vote, Georgia. Black voters matter. And shout out to my girl, Latasha Brown, the co-founder who has been on this podcast before. And to the other co-founder of Black Voters Matter, Cliff Albright. The New Georgia Project Action Fund, which knocked on five million doors to rally registered voters. The Black Male Initiative Georgia. These are the organizations that saved us from embarrassment. Time and again, Black people rise to the occasion, protect this democracy, and exhibit a level of patriotism and care for this country, knowing full well we will not get what we invest in return. We never have. So I am thankful. Thankful that we love this country that much. And despite being given so much evidence to the contrary, we will not give up on it. Thankful. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today, I met her back in 2014 at the BT Awards during that whole BT Awards weekend. She had the hottest show on television, so much so that when I worked at ESPN, we lobbied producers to get her on the show, even though they were like, now who is this again? And from what show? They didn't get it. And we simply just had to tell them, chill out, let us do our thing, trust us, she's a big deal. She always was a dual threat, someone who could sing and act, but now she's a triple threat. Because not only can she sing and act, but she's also now directing. She's played a few iconic characters you may have heard of, including Lil' Kim and the Honorable, well, not always, Tasha St. Patrick. 
Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Notori Naughton. All right, Naturi, we're going to start this podcast with a question I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and that is, when did you become unbothered? Ooh, I love this question. Um, when did I become unbothered? I feel like when I hit like 30 and I mean, really like 33 when I had my daughter, I feel like that's when I was like, nothing anyone says can phase me or stop me. So I would say in my early 30s is when my mindset shifted to the unbotheredness of life. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say you used to be bothered about the most? Ooh, other people's opinions all the time. I was bothered by other people's opinions, bothered by, you know, what people thought about me, you know, my past and the girl group I was in. I was, I was always worried about if people took me seriously or if I was enough, you know, and I think other people's opinions often kind of got into my own psyche and started psyching me out. And then that used to bother me a lot. Well, is it, is some of this the nature of the profession that you're in? I mean, you you have been both a, a singer and you're you're an actor. So is this just kind of what comes with the unfortunate territory of being in entertainment? Yeah, maybe you're right. I feel like we choose this career that is very emotionally, psychologically daunting and also a lot of pressure to live up to someone's expectations. I mean, when you think about being an actor, you go into a room or put yourself on tape and you say, please like me, please like me, please accept me, please say yes. And that that kind of conditions you to constantly be worrying about if they say yes to you because that's part of getting your job. And that that itself kind of, I guess, is part of the nature. But you almost have to reverse that when you're when you're not working or when you're not on set or in that, you have to remember like, oh, I'm just a human. I can be flawed. I don't have to look perfect all the time. This is not, you know, uh, the screen, the television screen. And being flawed is okay. Now, of course, um, there are so many people who have such a deep attachment to uh, your character, Tasha St. Patrick, as did I. (laughs) I was always Team Tasha. I just want people to know. (laughs) Always Team Tasha. I remember when I first met you and I was like, yeah, Jamel Hill actually is Team Tasha. I was so honored. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. But you've had such a a very rich career outside of that. And I thought one of the things that you've done somewhat recently that's really cool is that you made your directorial debut um, with Behind the Smile a movie that aired on BET Her that I believe the story is it centers on a news anchor who has vitiligo and some of the struggles that she goes through. So one, how did it feel to direct your first film? Girl, (laughs) it was hard work. (laughs) No, it it felt really, really amazing. I'm actually about to start my second um, directing job uh, with Swirl Films. I'm doing a short film called 333 that I wrote and directing. So I feel like Doing Behind the Smile was like something I've been wanting to do for years. When I was, you know, shooting Power, I used to shadow directors like Rob Hardy, you know, constantly asking questions. Anthony Hemingway used to give me a lot of insight, George Tillman. And I would be on the set like, I think I can do this. I actually understand, you know, telling the story from behind the lens. So I took a class actually at New York Film Academy at NYFA. 
and I studied uh, filmmaking and directing um, for a summer and it was life changing. So directing my first film, short film for BT Heart, especially because it was about something that I think, you know, mental health awareness, vitiligo, and just bringing that to the forefront. We haven't seen many lead actors be someone who's suffering from that skin condition. So I thought it was really cool. I enjoyed it. I also felt like it was coming home. It was like a safe space. It was hard work, but it was definitely a safe space. So how did directing, how do you think this informs you as an actor? I think directing informs me as an actor because now I understand how hard it is to be a director. You know, actors, we only have to show up for our scenes, right? We only have to show up for what we need to do. And often you kind of see the world one dimensionally, you know, like your scenes, what I got, and then you go home. The director is the first one there for all the scenes, the last one. He or she is prepping way before you even get there as an actor. The casting process. I just feel like as an actor, it made me so much more appreciative of the process. When you see the directing, you also understand the crew and lighting and the gaffers. It's just a holistic thing that makes you go, okay, this is a huge world and I'm grateful to be in it. Is this something that you see maybe eventually not now, but that could be a permanent career pivot for you? Oh, I definitely see this as a career pivot that kind of still pivots back and forth. My dream is to be like my big sister, uh, Regina King, who has really like encouraged me. I've worked with her on her directorial debut. And ever since then, I was like, girl, how do you do it? I just want to be like you because you're an actress, you're a producer, you're a director. And now she's like gone off and done amazing things. I'm so proud of Regina. And just to see how she's been able to transition in and out of that. That's the dream that I would like to have. You know, there's certain projects that maybe I'll just star in and then there's certain projects that I won't star in at all and just direct. So I definitely see it as a a swinging pendulum of being able to kind of go back and forth through each door. You know, since you brought up Regina, uh, because I think a lot of people have wondered this, how's she doing? You know, I, I don't, I haven't talked to her in a while. I sent her some stuff. I can only imagine. I knew you know, obviously I knew her son and I knew her and we spent a lot of time together. It's almost still like unbelievable, but I've talked to, you know, her family and friends and I know that she is, she's a strong woman, but also like what amount of strength does it take to get through something like this? I, I really can't even imagine. I love Regina. I'm always praying for her. I send her my love. She knows that. And I think right now, I just feel like, especially at that time, it's like a lot of people wanting to be in your thing and it, it can be overwhelming. And I think she just needs peace and time to mourn because I, I, I know how difficult that must be. So I love her and I'm sending her all my prayers. Yeah. uh, And, you know, everybody is such a a huge fan of hers and has been for a long time. So for a lot of us who do not know her as well as you, when that happened, it's like everybody's heart just collectively broke for her. Yeah. She's like our family member. Yeah. A hundred percent. I feel like we grew up with Regina, you know, in a lot of ways and watching her go through something so painful. It was so hurtful for me because I felt connected to it in a way uh, just by knowing, you know, all uh, everyone involved. So it's one of those moments where we just, we just root for her. We pray for her. We lift her up even from a distance. We just know that she'll get through this with our love and support. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure a lot of her fans will be encouraged to hear you say that. Taking a turn here, uh, let's talk about power, specifically 
how this universe just continues to keep growing. Yes, it's the universe that gets bigger and I'm bigger, telling right? You, it's like, I feel like the next series is going to be like, this is when Tommy and Ghost was kids, like starting when they were five. Like, I don't know where like this is. Like the toddler edition. Now that's funny. The, the toddler edition <laughs> of, of power. But in all seriousness, seeing how this universe has expanded so much, how does it feel for you knowing that you played a foundational role in all of this? It, it's surreal. You know, when I when I started Power, we were we were this little bitty show on a network that people didn't even know existed. Like, no lie. People were like, huh? Stars? Stars? Uh, they were like, I got HBO. I got Showtime. I don't have stars. But people literally bought stars just for us. So the foundation of not only just a show, but a foundational part of what launched an entire network. So that alone makes me feel like, wow, I feel like the mother of it all because Tasha was the actually only like black female centered, you know, lead role at that time. You know, now there's so many other, you know, shows like Raising Canaan, you have Patina, you have so many other you know, elements of the power universe that have given opportunities to women, particularly and female centric stories as well. So it feels really good. It feels really cool. And I'm still a part of it. It's like, I'm just amazed that Tasha has not been killed or stabbed or shot. You know why? Because she is the woman that I think we all fight for and root for. She will never go down easy. Tasha's the OG. Yeah. So you are not done with the power universe then. Well, I don't know. So last season of Ghost, I did uh, kind of surprise the audience. I was in the finale of that. And I'll just say without saying too much, because I don't want them to kill me. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely have some key important moments where Tariq still needs his mother because he's going to still need because he always in some mess y'all know he's always in some mess he always get in trouble with somebody so every once in a while mama gotta come through and save my son so we'll see <laughs> now i i mean i feel uh special because technically i'm now a part of the power universe <laughs> having played myself you are i thought that was so cool i did too because i never would have would thought in a million years but shout out to courtney kemp because she thought about me I will be reappearing. I'll say that. I'll drop a tease. I also be will be reappearing in the power universe. <laughs> hey. Oh, good. Oh, this is awesome. And you know what? Shout out to, like you said, to Courtney, because Courtney is one of those women who's a showrunner as a black woman. A lot of people always wonder who writes this show. And I'm like, it's a woman. And they're like, wait, a woman wrote this hard gangsta ass show? And I'm like, yes, a black woman who's intelligent and smart. But the way she saw Tasha, and I, I was just talking about this in another interview, they were like, you know, because I was the, the role was written to be 10 years older and she she rewrote it to to fit my age because I'm younger than Omari. She also added the elements of Tasha being a singer and wanting to have a career. She like curated this part so that it could have, you know, some elements in which were true to me. And it just feels so special because when I look back at almost 10 years, that was nine years ago, Jamel. I started Power nine years ago. <laughs> A decade almost. 2023 will be our 10 year anniversary. So I just think it's, you know, a blessing to be able to see her growth and her transition into so many other things, but also what she's done for me, Omari, Joseph Shakur, you know, Lala, just transitioning so many careers into like the next universe. So thank you to her. Now, before you landed the role, Latasha, I believe I read that you hadn't worked in two years. Like what was going on during that time? 
the struggle is real. Uh, that's when I was completely bothered, okay? Not unbothered. I was very bothered by the lack of work and the lack of money in my account. Um, <laughs> no, I was living in LA. So I used to live in North Hollywood. A lot of people know I'm from New Jersey. I'm from you know East Orange, but I moved. I drove my car across country to pursue my dreams and moved to North Hollywood. And during that time, I had done like Notorious, Fame. I had actually, before I moved, I had like two or three movies that came back to back. And then like the movie business changed. People stopped making films as much. TV became where a lot of artists were going to make money. But there was also this like transition of, I feel like now everything's diversity, diversity. But at that time, that was not the case. It was like a real struggle to be, you know, you were either the best friend or the side character. It just wasn't connecting. So I was living in LA. I started writing. I took classes. I was taking acting classes. I was like about to actually move back home and go on unemployment. And I remember my friend, my very good friend to this day, Josea Chanchez, he was like, you know, don't do it. Don't leave LA. You got to stick it out. And I was like, this is going to be tough because where the money coming from? Uh, and then I got a call from my agent that 50 Cent, Courtney Kemp, and uh, Stars, which I was like, Stars? Is that Encore? I was very confused. Um, <laughs> is doing a new show called Power. And there's, a, and I was like, okay, it was by the grace of God, seriously, Jamel. It really did reignite my life, my confidence, my career, and that they wanted a brown skin girl. Because at that time, I felt like I was up against a lot of parts where it was like, you're either too black, I was like, but you said you wanted a black girl. And they were like, oh, no, more ethnically ambiguous. That was the ethnically ambiguous phase. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <You're right>. uh, <laughs> I'm, you want ethnic? I'm black. I'm ethnic. You said what? Whatever. And then it was like, but then I was an African. So it was like, you're not black enough. <laughs> like I need, you know, and so it was, a, it was challenging. But Tasha fell into my lap. Not really. I fought really hard for it and it didn't fall into my lap. I had to go through five auditions. But when I got it, it really did change, you know, the trajectory of my career. So what's the closest? Is that the closest rather that you come close to quitting acting? Well, I would say no. Well, acting maybe, but the closest I came to, I would say quitting the business was when I went to Seton Hall, I went to college and I was completely done acting, singing, music. You know, this was post 3LW. I was like, oh no, they ain't getting no more of my heart because too much pain, too much heartache, too much, you know, worrying about, like I said, what other people thought and not being happy within myself. I was in a really, I, I would say dark time in my life at that time. I didn't want to be anywhere near the business. I was going to be a lawyer. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to school for political science. And that's what I did. So I, I kind of like, I wouldn't say quit. I just was like, I'm done. Like, I guess I was just emotionally drained and I had to do something else. So that was, I would say the first time that I stepped away from the industry as a whole. And that was two, two and a half years. And then obviously, you know, living in LA and that time I almost, almost gave up. Was Tasha the only role on the show that you went for or were considered for? It was the first audition. Okay. It was the only thing that I don't even, I mean, I, I know there were other roles, but at that time it was like, it's either you're Tasha or nothing at all. Or nobody. Okay. So how did you, I don't know, how did you make yourself stand out? You go through the audition process that much. So what did you do to say like, hey, Tasha is me? It's funny because they actually told me Tasha is not me because I was too young, like I said, initially. 
And I was like, okay, well, I can look older. I went and I didn't have a, a lot of money. At that time, my friend, again, Hosea, shout out to Hosea Chance. He's gonna be so happy. I'm like telling this story. I could. I went to BCBG on like Melrose or something, and I didn't have the money to buy this white, uh, like Urban Legere dress. It was like a bandage, sexy. Because I knew the idea. Tasha steps out the Escalade in an all white dress is set in a script with like you know she's like high drug deals, white, very elevated. So I went and bought a white dress, but I couldn't afford the dress because it was like $458. And I got a wig. I contoured my, I was doing all kinds of stuff just to look more mature. This is when I was 29 years old, by the way. And Omari, I think was 38 or something. And so they wanted the role to be 40. And I was like, ugh. So I, my friend, when I left the store, uh, Jose was like, you know, something's coming to your house. And I was like, what? He had bought me the dress. He called the store that I was in bought me the white dress and I saved that dress to this day. And I have it kind of like as a moment to remind myself when I couldn't afford a designer dress in BC, like BCBG or one of them stores. And yeah, I went to the audition. I was decked out hair, you know, body on fleek. I was like, cause they said Tasha walks in like Mary J and I gave them uh, not going to cry vibes. I gave them all the, the sexy, no hater ration. And so I was like, let me come in here and just show them that I can be fun and sexy and badass and strong and vulnerable. So that was actually what I did. And I mean, I went through about four or five auditions to get it. That's so funny that they wanted Tasha to be older because I'm just thinking about conceptually what that would have looked like. And it just, it just didn't make sense. You know, the role of the children was way older too. Ah. That's why. So, I mean, and I wasn't a mother at the time. So it was, it was hard to sell that I could be a mother of a fifth. The role with Tariq was originally 15 going on 16 and Tariq was a twin with Raina. So to have twins at 15, 16, like my little 29 year old self, they were like, now nah, come on. So they made them 12, which was still a stretch, but she could have been a young mom, you know, at 30. So she changed the age of the children and cast them younger. And what, the youngest one, Yasmin? Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> look at me. I done forgot my other baby. Forgot your children. All I know is Yasmin di disappeared for about three seasons. I was like, don't she got a little one? <laughs> there was a whole hashtag. Hashtag, where's baby Yasmin? She vanished. And then she would come back at eight years old. And I was like, huh? When did you grow up? <laughs> See, that's that's some soap opera shit. That's what they do in the soap opera. <laughs> so, oh, that's actually very true. Yeah. So at what point did you realize that you were a part of a hit show? Like, at what point did you all feel like this show is a hit? I would say season three. Season three was when I think the world kind of started changing around us. The The industry I was nominated for NAACP Image Award, which was crazy. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, growing up, it was like our Oscars. So to be nominated on a show that started off kind of like under underground a little bit, and then all of a sudden, everywhere we went, people were like, oh, ain't you Tasha? Tell Tariq, I'm about to be mad at him because ghost and then they would be yelling at us like you know ghost is stupid he should have stayed with you angie is a snitch and i'll be like oh okay so that's when season three i would say like you know that time period because it was such a energetic season where people really got like into social media and this was pre-covid so people were having power parties every sunday night 
they would get together and hang out and there became like this culture phenomenon around the show and a lot of opinions. So I, I feel like the opinionated folks made me realize, oh, y'all really into this. Like this is real life. So that that kind of is when I knew, OK, we got a hit show. Man, one of the most glorious days ever on Twitter was when Tommy choked out Holly and I swear and to the God, spit. I, oh, and the spit. That was so yes. good. Yeah, that was a real moment. And the actress who played her, she was phenomenal because people... She was excellent. She was excellent. She understood the assignment for sure. But remember, Tasha sniffed it out first. She told her this girl is trifling. I then told him that she stole my <laughs> earrings. He didn't want to listen. She stole the earrings. So you mentioned the, the fan response. Like, What are some memorable fan encounters that you can remember? <laughs> this happened still very recently, like as if power is still like on in its fresh form. Uh, recently, somebody was like, uh, he said something to the fact guys do this a lot. Like, you know, I could be your real ghost because ghost, you know, he fucked up. But, you know, let me let you know, you know, I could be I'm like, uh, no, I'm married. But thanks anyway. Or, you know what, people, an encounter that happened with, I think, Michael, he had some people, like, really upset, I guess, in the elevator. And then I saw some people in a grocery store, and they were upset with me that they were like, why didn't you um, smack him when he said that, like, you should? And I was like, oh, you know, they was like, no, I feel some type of way. Like, they kept going. And I was like, you do realize that that's not really my son, and I can't really. <laughs> right, this is not they, real. Like, Let me tell you something. <laughs> if that was my son, I would have. And I was like, but he's not? But okay. So I, I guess people are just in Brooklyn in particular, because we shot in Brooklyn and it feels like such an energy here. They would come up to us on set. You know, people just love the show. But honestly, most fans I get are loving and like they really ride for Tasha. They actually are very supportive. So I, I get a lot of love, too. Well, it's interesting. I went back to look to see what was the review of the pilot episode of Power. And the Hollywood Reporter wrote, the writing and the acting are not memorable. The visual acumen isn't impressive. What? That was from the Hollywood Reporter. Look at how see, they didn't know. Yes. <laughs> Let me tell you. You know, when shows first start, people don't often get the vision. And that's Okay. And I actually like being the underdog in most cases of my career. And even with this, we were the underdog and then it just changed the game. So I guess, you know, in an interesting way, it's kind of nice to see seven, eight seasons later. It's like, Hollywood Reporter, would you like to uh, recant that or add something to that statement? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the show should have gone on longer? Power, I think, ended at a perfect time. I, I think the way they transitioned to Ghost, uh, which is pretty much like the continuation, honestly, it's the most closest to Power, Ghost is. The other spinoffs are uh, quite deviation from it, but Ghost is an exact pickup from Tasha going to jail, you know, her son going to college, but her being in prison, then she's in witness protection now. I mean, uh, for all the people who don't know, so much is happening. I think it transitioned well. I personally missed Omari Hardwick and the energy that all of us had like something about that original it's very hard to duplicate and and I think the the young generation and the new the new cast are killing it I love Woody and Michael's killing it and and you know Gianni all of them and Toya they're doing a great job I just feel like there is something unique and special when you when we remember what that was like it's hard to kind of duplicate and replace. When power was over, I was 
falling. Like I remember our last day and Omari came and said, and we just, and Joe and, and just that energy, it felt like, felt like, and then when I had to kill Lala, like the last season, I was like, this is emotionally too much. Like I done killed my best friend. I lost my husband slash baby daddy. Like what is happening? So that was hard for me. Were you ever concerned that they were going to snuff out Tasha? Absolutely. Because I was like, somebody's <laughs> going to get Because I was thinking, honestly, Tommy, you know, Joseph Shakur, he's really upset about this uh, Lakeisha situation. He might come back and get me. And he almost did in, in multiple occasions. But somehow, you know, it worked out. But I do sometimes get nervous and I would actually hit up Courtney like, okay, so I would text her like, Sue, is she going to make it? <laughs> I, I was just like, is she going to make it? And she could see so far ahead. She was like, she will be the last woman standing. And she was right. She was right. I hated that it had to include Raina, but that's what's I know. <laughs> now that was hard. That was hard yeah. too. Oh, I couldn't even watch that. That was tough. Yeah, because I texted her after I saw it and I was like, Courtney, I really could fight you right now. <laughs> I was like, you know you ain't right. <laughs> but you, have... you know you ain't right. I, that is a testament. Great television. It's though. great television. There's so much more I want to ask you about. Girl, we got to talk about Queens. I need to ask you about Queens. Oh, yes. yes. We have to talk yes. about Queens. So much has happened since power. So much has happened yes queens and and definitely about you and your husband being business partners and what you guys have going on with credit rich so we're going to talk about all that but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more with naturi Norton. i know a lot of women are afraid to get old but Not me. I want to get old. Aside from the fact that it means I'm still living, I want to get old because I want to reach that age that old people get this magical place where they just don't care. That age where whenever they say something, people just shrug because they know there isn't shit they can say, nothing they can do to change who they are. So I got a story to tell that perfectly illustrates the type of old person I want to be. Actually, let me correct that because it's not my story. It's someone else's story. This is a story that went viral recently. Someone, I don't know who, taped their father-in-law telling a story about that time he had to confront his grandmother's pastor about performing the service at his grandmother's funeral. Take a listen, enjoy, and thank me later. Is you perfect or something? How the fuck you gonna say me? Yeah, the preacher. Oh, when you go up against them motherfuckers? Oh, son, let me put my hands on you and pray for you. <laughs> what about you, you no good motherfucker? <laughs> Taking these people money, like that motherfucker with my my grandmama passed. This motherfucker, my grandmama helped him build a, a fucking, her and everybody else in the congregation, helped him build a whole fucking wing on his church. Then she died, he talking about, Well, I don't know if we can have a funeral here. I said, if you don't have that motherfucker here, you won't have another one, because I'm going to burn this bitch down. (laughs) I told him right to his face. He said, son, what you say? I said, I'm going to burn this bitch down if you don't have my grandmother's funeral in this bitch after she done gave you all my grandfather's money for all these fucking 50 years she's been coming here, and you telling me she ain't having her funeral here? Won't be near enough one in this motherfucker because I'm going to burn this bitch down and I got gas in the car because I know you's an ignorant motherfucker. 
Oh no no no! We gonna go through all that. We 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 are having him. This guy and my father and my auntie just sat there like he'll do it. Yeah. That funeral was that Saturday. What the fuck you mean you ain't gonna preach her funeral? And she been coming up here with this ignorant ass shit for fifty years, giving you all my grandfather's money while he waited out in the car because he knew you was full of shit. But he loved his wife, so he brought her and gave her the money to get your bitch ass. And now you talking about you ain't going to give her her funeral here? I said, man, I'll burn this bitch down in the daytime. <laughs> I told that motherfucker, I said, I'll burn that bitch down in the daytime. I told him that, that motherfucker preached the shit out that funeral. That nigga was, she was a good one. My man said he will burn that bitch down in the daytime. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I got some old people in my family that will burn some shit down in the daytime, too. Matter of fact, before my grandmother passed, she was behind on her mortgage and she told the bank when they were threatening to foreclose. And this is a direct quote. I'll burn this motherfucker to the ground before I let you take it from me. Know what they did? Not a damn thing. And now back to more with Naturi Naughton. So I mentioned before the break that I wanted to talk about Queens. I loved that show. What the hell happened? <laughs> oh, so much, Jamel. I don't even know where to begin. Queens was such a big show with so much money behind it. Disney, ABC put a big push, billboards everywhere. I personally thought it was great. I thought it was going to be a huge hit, and I thought we would at least get one more season. I don't know what happened, but I do know that because the platforms, at that time, they were pushing the whole Hulu thing, watch it on Hulu, watch it you know, on ABC, but I guess I heard we weren't getting the live numbers that we needed. Like We needed the viewers to show up live, or at least DVR. A lot of people were watching it way later on Hulu, so it caused, I think, a lag in the network's response time and seeing how people were enjoying the show. People are like, what? I loved Queens and Jill the Thrill. And I had, they were very into it. And I was having a good time. Honestly, the rapping, the music, you know, working with icons like Eve, Brandy. It was great. It was just a hard show. I'm going to be honest. It was a hard show to make. I don't talk about Queens that much because uh, it's just such a mixed emotion for me because I, you know, I put so much into it, um, you know, shot it, moved to Atlanta, had my whole family kind of relocate for this. And it, it just didn't, I feel like we didn't get a full shot to continue growing our fan base. Cause you know, new, Scandal wasn't an immediate hit. Power was an immediate hit. And I was saying like shows often, particularly, you know, when you're starting a new thing and these were all women of color, you need to give it a chance to catch on. The writing was fun. I loved working with, you know, Eve and then, and, and Brandy. It was, it was fun. It was just a lot of egos involved in that show and a lot of emotions. So it was, it was probably a, a challenging thing to maintain. I was wondering if there was any possibility that it, it could surface elsewhere. I thought about that too. And Zaheer McGee, shout out to Zaheer. He was our showrunner writer. He's so talented and I think a genius writer. The fact that he was able to flash back to the 90s and create this girl group, a hip hop girl group at that, and give us so many storylines because we all had these really interesting storylines. If 
we even said like with another network, you know, at that time we were kind of hopeful that maybe, you know, someone else could pick it up. But I think, I don't know if that's a, it's Disney's property and ownership. So it was one of those things, if it didn't go on there, it, it kind of dies. When that happens, you know, as a professional in this industry, how do you handle it when you know something is a good product and maybe it didn't latch on the way it was supposed to? It almost feels like we had a formula and like what happened? You, It's the unexplainable things in this business that it's frustrating. You feel like, I know I did everything right. I know they did everything right. We performed our asses off. It was like, what more could we have done? It's just like, I guess even musical artists, you're like, it was, the song should have been a hit. It was perfect. It, but timing and the industry is changing to so many, there's so many things to watch, you know, on streaming that it's hard for network television to even continue to make an impact. I also think, I will say this, where we were placed, our time slot and our night was not the right time and not the right night. I'll say this now. I tried to say it then. <laughs> I did feel that we were placed in, I mean, like after, I think it was after The Bachelorette, on a like Tuesday and the World Series was going on and, and it was very late. You know, people be trying to go to bed at 10 o'clock because they got their kids and you got to get to school. People be tired. But it was something about that time slot because a lot of people said to me, dang, I just wish y'all came on early. I fell asleep last night, girl. I was going to watch it, but it doesn't come on till 10 and my baby got to go to yeah, it feels frustrating, but it's also sometimes you got to roll with it and just recognize you will have failures even when it looks good. And everything that shines don't mean it's glitter. Because of, you know, some of the negative experiences that you had in the music business, was it ever difficult for you to play musically centered stories? Like Queens was a musical centered story. Obviously, everybody knows you played Lil' Kim. It was almost like my real life. <laughs> a girl group. Exactly. I was like, was a girl group that broke up, right? So is it hard for you to emotionally, you know, play those roles? Do you have to go through a mental process to get into it? Maybe a little bit, but not hard at all. I love musical centric things. I think I naturally gravitate them and people tend to surprisingly remember me. So even when I got the offer for Queens, which was amazing to get a straight offer for an ABC network show, I was like, wow. They were like, oh, we know you rap. We know you can sing. I love doing musically centric things. I think this particular show did bring out some emotions because it was so similar to some of the things I experienced. A lot of the issues that were happening in the show, I lived. <laughs> Even the fake cribs episode when we had a fake crib and then we all split up and we were arguing. That was literally, and I had told Zahir that story. He was like, oh, that's crazy. We're going to put it in the show. I literally lived that. We were arguing, not getting along, fake house, decorated it for a few hours, had to get out by a certain time so the real owner could come back and then just go back to, you know, a regular life. So I think the show brought up some memories and some painful things that I maybe hadn't even really talked about or dealt with. And in a good way, it actually became therapy. So with Queens, it allowed me to really go deeper and talk about it through this character and allow myself to feel the pain that I didn't allow myself to feel when I was a teenager. Now, obviously, it was a little different when you played Lil' Kim. Share how you got that role. Little Kim was another hard role to get, y'all. Let me tell you. I was not an actress that anyone had ever really knew. I was on Broadway doing a musical called Hairspray at the time. 
And they were like, oh, there's this movie, B.I.G. I I was like, okay, cool. Who should I audition for? Who do they want me? And they were like, little Kim. And I was like, huh? It was the furthest thing from my mind. I was like, there's no way I could ever be little Kim. I'm super conservative, by the way. I went to Catholic school my whole life. I never imagined that I'd be naked with my titties out. Like, girl, I was like, how do I do this? I went in that audition and didn't even know how to rap. The first audition, Twinkie Bird casted and Wendy McKenzie, they're like, can you do All About the Benjamins or something? You know, want to rumble with the beat? And I was like, want to rumble with... And I knew this, I just couldn't get... I was... I don't even tell this story that much. I'm just telling you. I was struggling. Like, want to rumble with the beat? Huh? Throw a hex on the whole family. I mean, you just sing along raps like in the car. You know what I'm saying? Or something. Or let me tell you how <laughs> I was a Catholic school girl from East Orange, New Jersey, who had a brother who had a little Kim post. The most I had heard, you know, obviously from his room. You know, I have an older brother, so he knew all about it. But when they came out, I, I knew Biggie, I knew the songs, and I knew Kim and Junior Mafia, but I didn't connect the way I connect now to music. I was so engrossed in R&B and Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin. I knew every word to every Whitney song. And every, but when it came, a little came, I was like, oh, okay, I know it, you know, crush on you. Okay, cool. But I wasn't doing every lyric. So when I got in the room, I was like, wanna rumble with the B, huh? Z-Z-Z. Z- and it says Z. It was horrible. They actually believed in me. I killed my scenes, though. I killed my audition. Like, I did a great job with the acting. I got a callback, like, almost instantly. And I was like, are you serious? So I was in my room. i never forget this. I was still living with my parents in East Orange, in my room, listening to the whole album, Big Mama Thing, going through each song. And I was like, this shit is dope. Like, she's fired. And I really changed my, like, I started practicing how I placed my vowels and the sounds of my mouth. And instead of, like, the brightness of Naturi, is like, oh, my God, yes! And then I was like, let me rumble with the beat, huh? Like, everything became very husky and very deep. And your your mouth has to like, so I, I enjoyed the finding little Kim. And then I started doing a ton of research. She's a phenomenal human and, and not even just artist, but her journey as a person. I had so much respect. I was so excited to do it. And then I went through about three other auditions. I wound up getting a wig. I had contacts. I did different things to show them I could be both versions. And I got the part. Wow. So to get that as, you know, kind of like your your breakout role, like what did that mean to you, you know, personally that you were about to play in this type of movie about, you know, a, a person that was so beloved? What did that mean to you personally to be able to do that? It meant a lot to me. It felt like a responsibility. I definitely wanted to honor and respect, you know, the journey, her story, the movie itself had a lot of different elements. I didn't write the story, which I think was some some of the issues Little Kim herself had with how she was portrayed. But, you know, I was just an actress. So I just wanted to do well. You know, I really wish that I had a different relationship, like in support from from her side. And I think there was just a lot of like things that I couldn't control. I went into it like, I'm going to make her look good, sound good. I want people to see how talented she was, how hungry she was, how hard she fought. But also I wanted people to see, you know, from what I read and what I learned is the love that her and Biggie had, like the, the real love and connection. However, you know, dysfunctional or challenging it may have been, I still felt like I wanted to portray the honest uh, connection that they had. 
you enter the word, but when you discovered or it surfaced that she kind of had an issue with how she was portrayed, how did you receive that? At first, it, I received it very like personally, like it hurt my feelings. I'm gonna be honest. Because uh, it wasn't just about the issue with how she was portrayed, it was how she looked and how she felt like I didn't look like her. So I had already been in an industry that judged or criticized how I looked or that I wasn't the look. So it was a lot of things that I was like, okay, this is happening again 10 years later. So I took it on kind of initially very personal because obviously like it's me that's playing her and I'm I'm the girl. So I did feel, you know, a little bit like it was personal, but then I realized like as I matured as an actress that it's tricky. So I empathize with that and I almost feel like, you know, now it's just like I hope in hindsight that it's all love. I did my part. I was I was in my first movie and all I wanted was to make it. I have nothing but love and respect for Kim and just wanted to do her role justice as best as I could. Now let's talk about your husband. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) At least based off the, what I've read is that Omari actually introduced, Omari Hartwick introduced you to your husband. Is is that true? He did, my TV husband. Yes, introduced you to your real husband. That's crazy. (laughs) To this day, when I think about it, I'm like, that is so, and it's so true. Like I would have never met two if it wasn't for Omari, because he's an artist management, you know, he has his own company and we were at the studio. It's funny, at Quad Studios where Tupac was shot. Oh, wow. Yeah, we met at Quad Studios and it was just such an interesting time. I had just came back from Africa. I went to like Nigeria, Ghana. I was like, you know, I was kind of getting my mojo back post having my baby. My daughter was two years old and we were in the studio and I was doing a song with Omari. He was like, you got to meet my manager. Um, I'm working on this and that. He was, you know, Dave East was upstairs and he was working with Dave East. So they came down. He was like, two, you know, Naturi. you know, he said, two, you know, Turs, because Omari calls me Turs. And he was like, Turs, you got to know too, do. And I was like, okay, no, I don't know him, but okay, like, cool. So we sat in the studio. We literally talked for like two hours straight. It was about, we talked about church. He actually invited me to, because he lived in Harlem at the time. He invited me to church in Harlem. Wait, he invited you to church? Yes, girl. Oh, snap. That was one of our first dates. Was church? Our first date was actually um, shuffleboarding in Brooklyn and Gowanus. We went shuffleboarding. And one of our like earlier dates, like after that, we went to church together. And it was amazing. I was like, you know, he's a Southern gentleman from Atlanta. And he just seems so pure. Like it was, it wasn't even like, a conversation that felt like full of those like cliche flirty things. It was like, oh, I felt like I was talking to my friend and I had met someone that allowed me to be my goofy, silly, funny, very outgoing like self because I'm I'm kind of like turned up um, and he's very like turned out. <laughs> and <laughs> years later, here we are. Y'all sound like some real old people. The first date was shuffleboard. Then the second. No, <laughs> y'all go exactly. <laughs> We were playing like giant Jenga, but it's so much fun. You got to go to shuffleboarding. Have you ever been to a Royal Palms in Brooklyn? It's so much fun. I have heard of it, but I've never been. I was like shuffleboarding. This hmm, is interesting. this is super like original. It's not what you think. It sounds old, but it's actually going to be some watch in a year. They're going to be like, oh, everybody's trying to do shuffleboarding now because I'm about to bring it back. Now, I, I imagine obviously in your line of work. Dating is is difficult, you know, and so I saw that or I read rather that your husband had a one year rule. What was the one year rule? Yes, we talked about that. It's so funny. Everyone thought it meant like sex, like one year rule, like no sex, whatever. It's so funny. We're actually 
developing a project uh, about his one year rule because I think it's so crazy. When we were dating or talking, we were in the talking phase. He had this rule that he would not officially become like, you know, have a girlfriend or be a boyfriend until he knew the person for a year and had like been spending time with them, dates, you know, but it was unofficial. Like, even though we were going on dates and dating, he was like, I'm courting, you know, he was courting me and stuff, but he didn't want it to be like, we're official anything until a year. And I was like, okay, well, I ain't about to wait around for no year for you to figure yourself out. I want a boyfriend. And he was like, you know, I'm not jumping into any more relationships because the last time he did that, he had, it kind of went badly. And a lot of people aren't who they say they are. And it takes a year. Sometimes those first three months, six months, people are just all heavenly. And then in a year, you're like, you're kind of crazy. So we shouldn't be together. So he would not commit to a committed relationship until a year of us talking. And I was slightly annoyed. And then one of my friends, one of my girlfriends was like, well, maybe you should be patient. This is kind of a good sign that he's not trying to rush, you know, and, but nobody said it was a year of no intimacy. Now people took that and ran with it. And I was like, let's be clear. <laughs> right. We, we had to do a few test runs before. You know. like, let the record show now. <laughs> <laughs> Were you kind of in the uh, a different mindset, too? Because, you know, you had a daughter from a previous relationship. So that means, you know, that changes things dating wise for you, too. So how did you handle that part of it? Absolutely. You're right. And I actually kind of am glad that he was not rushing because I also wanted to. And I was really particular about any other man meeting Missouri, meeting my daughter. And I had just kind of come out of with like a year prior. Uh, I was in a like dysfunctional relationship where I had to learn how to even love myself again. And that was part of like from 2017 to 2019, I was single. And those two years I had to like repair those broken parts of myself. So by the time I met my now husband, I was like, okay, I need to be very cautious about who, a who I let in my circle, in my heart, but also in my daughter's heart, because I don't want her to go through those ups and like, it's just too much. And even though, you know, her biological dad is still in her life, it was just nice to know that someone that I could be with would step up and be a father figure to her, which he, he absolutely is. So not only are you guys um, married, you're also business partners in a company called Credit Rich, right? Now explain why that was something that you guys wanted to do together. Yeah, that's one of the things that actually came about through Angel Rich, who is like the... Yeah, I know Angel. You know, <laughs> she's out here killing it. She's she's so intelligent. And as a, you know, I would say financial literacy and building brands around how to help with millennials and particularly people of color with their credit. We, to and I, thought, let's jump on board with what Angel Rich is doing to amplify that voice and also to figure out you know, the app is being built and putting it, you know, in banks so that young people can not only, you know, save money, they can start building credit so they can buy homes, start their own businesses and do different things. I think that credit has been often like not talked about. You know, when we were younger, it was like, just make sure you make money, save your money. My grandmother had money under the mattress. Two comes from a really, I think, awareness about credit and building. So he was way more adept in that than I was. I'm not going to lie. I was a successful actress that didn't know about investing, didn't really know about credit. And when we 
collaborated with Angel on Credit Ridge, it became an opportunity for us to also utilize our voices to say to young people how important it is to be rich in credit. And that's real richness and real wealth because that goes a, a lot farther than just cash itself. We're launching in 2023 and then just an opportunity to bring that to the masses. So I'm excited about Credit Rich as well. Shout out to Angel Rich. Yeah, because uh, listen, I get asked all the time by younger college students about, oh, what's a mistake that you you made in college? I was like, oh, the biggest mistake that I made was signing up for a credit card over a free T-shirt because I didn't understand anything about credit. And then you wind up drowning in like debt later. Yeah, I'm drowning in debt because I'm trying to eat pizza and fast food every night. It was like ridiculous. <laughs> so young people, take care of your credit. It means everything. Yes, yes. Get your credit right. All right, Nutri, before I get you out of here, I'm going to play a game with you Ooh. that I play with all my guests that appear on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Oh, I love games. Okay, it's simple. The game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two options and you gotta, gotta pick one. Okay. Okay. He's like, you gotta. The pressure. Gotta. The pressure. Okay. The more famous East Orange native, Queen Latifah or Lauren Hill? Well, Queen Latifah, because Lauren Hill's from South Orange. Queen Latifah's from East Orange. Ah, okay. You know, East Orangers know this. Queen Latifah is from East Orange, New Jersey. I used to see her growing up around the hood with her motorcycle and her and her brother. So definitely Queen Latifah. Love Lauren Hill, though. But that's not East Orange. Okay. All right. Gotcha. I stand corrected. And that's a that's an easy way for you to, to answer that question. The more cold-blooded death that was caused by Tasha, Terry Silver or Kanan's son, Sean? <laughs> oh, gosh. That was tough. You know, the way Kanan killed Sean was just so cutthroat. I, I, I still, to this day, play by Senkwa, who's a friend of mine. He was in our wedding. I'm like, dang, they had to kill you, son. It wasn't my fault, though. Did I do that? I mean, it kind of was your fault. <laughs> you got him a little, you got him up in the mix. All right. Okay, I did. He just trying to drive you. You got him a, you know. I know. I did. I did. You know, he was a little pussy whipped. He, he got a little. <laughs> he was. He, he was. He, he was. He totally he was. He was totally, he was young and gone. So, Sean, I'll go with Sean. You know, I always thought that was interesting that they actually killed Kanan off because I, I wondered if there was. If there was a little more life left in that role for 50, because he's, mm. you know, I just wonder because it, it, I wondered if it was a little bit more life left. In I'm it. sure there was, but it probably was just a scheduling thing. You know, they kill people sometimes because they're not available. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, you, you can't do this. All right. <laughs> I'm killing okay. your ass. <laughs> and finally, when you told ghosts, keep fucking that bitch until I tell you not to. Or when ghosts. Pushes you in the forehead with his finger. <laughs> oh my gosh. The mush. The mush. <laughs> that two finger. Do you know that that was not scripted? That happened in real time when we were shooting in that kitchen. And this man came. I mean, it was like I saw it in slow motion coming towards my head. That became a meme for so long. And it was like not something that I didn't, I didn't think it would be such a big thing. But when I saw the episode and I told Omari, I was like, oh, so you mushing me now? That's what you're doing? That's what we doing? To this day, I feel like people will always be like, that's like when ghosts, but like, it was such a 
impromptu and that's how much we trusted each other as actors like anything could happen and you knew that it was still love and we were safe and we protected each other because Omari was very much a protector on set particularly of me and when he did that though I was like oh (laughs) really but I knew it was going to be like a hit if they used that take I was like oh this is about to be such a moment and it was so I love that moment and and it's even though it's embarrassing I love it because it's great television that is one of my favorite scenes but I I did think one of the coldest lines you ever said was when you told him to keep fucking that bitch until I tell you I tell you to stop actually is what she said until you tell you to stop that's what it is okay that line to this day is one of my favorite scenes because it was a shift in power and that's exactly what the show is about power is not a show about ghosts it's not about tasha it's, not, it's all about the shift in power it's just amazing again to see how this universe has expanded i mean i fully expect 20 years from now this is going to be tommy as Our a senior citizen a oh, grandkids right the grandkids. you know i'm uh tasha's <laughs> great grandson i know i was like it, it's not gonna stop till i give yasmin a cartel she gotta get one now <laughs> Now that's a good idea. Don't tell Courtney. I'm gonna call Courtney. I'm gonna tell her. I'm gonna text her. I'm like, Courtney, the next evolution is clearly Yasmin got to get in the dope game. Clearly, that's yes. what it is. She keep, has to. That's actually funny. Keep the family tradition. Well, look, Naturi, thank you so much for joining me, spending this time thank with you. me. You're such a wonderful, not just person, but obviously you're a brilliant actress. But it always is great to me when it's. The people who are great at their craft like you are, and they wind up being the best people too. Like that's such a dynamic and dope combination. Thank you. That's how I feel about you. Watching how you've been able to do so much, not just in this medium, but also like in politics and influence in the younger generation. Props to you for real, sis, because I'm just thank really you. proud. Yeah. It's all good. But anyway, Notori, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you are getting out of here. My listeners know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Had a lot of things on the 2020 bingo card, climate disasters, the Republican red wave actually happening, but thankfully it didn't, the further erosion of civil rights. But nowhere on this bingo card did I have black people caping for Adolf Hitler and fuck it, I'm bothered. As Kanye West has sunken further into becoming a Nazi apologist poster boy, one of the worst conversations to emerge from this mess is the revisionist history as it pertains to Adolf Hitler. Yes, you heard that right. Between Kanye saying that Hitler did some good things and the continued circulation of a fake quote, there are some black people out here trying to create a narrative in which Hitler fucked with us. Let me be absolutely 100% unequivocally clear. That quote that folks keep passing around, the one where Hitler supposedly said black people are the chosen people and are the real Jews, it is 100% false. Hitler never said that. Let me repeat this again. False. He never said that. The quote started circulating in a meme around 2017 because we know memes is how bad information is often passed. Its origins actually trace back to 2015, where it appeared on a completely obscure website. It was presented as completely unsourced material. No reference to any books, published works, 
never said where it came from, just told a story about how Hitler supposedly said this to a German soldier as he explained that in his death, he was going to start World War III to protect the world from the Illuminati and the Jews. This is the dubious basis that some people want to use to excuse the reprehensible actions of Kanye West and to make this incredibly sad distinction. Let's just use our common sense here. Hitler killed 6 million Jews because he believed in a pure white Aryan race. He believed the white race was superior to everyone, including black people. So why on Beyonce's planet would he have ever fucked with us? And for the record, Hitler persecuted Afro-Germans. He sent them to the gas chamber. He subjected them to painful medical experiments, discriminated against them, marginalized them, and made it difficult for them to do the most basic things in Germany. The Nazis forcibly sterilized Afro-German children who lived in the Rhineland region of Germany because he did not want them to contaminate the white race. In fact, in his autobiography, Mein Kampf, Hitler blamed the Jews for bringing in the Rhineland children because, of course, he did. Here's what we not going to do as black people. We're not going to start mimicking our oppressors and denigrating other races and cultures and denying history and basically taking part in this propaganda machine because we need to feel superior. We're not going to start siding with monsters because we want someone else to feel our suffering. If you find yourself making pro-Hitler arguments or claiming he wasn't that bad or saying he was misunderstood, do me a favor. Put that shitty ass opinion in a box, throw it in the ocean so fucking far out there that not even motherfucking Jacques Cousteau can find it. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the father. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a 